While you grab your seat, you can grab a copy of the scriptures and you want to open up to the book of Job. This morning we'll be in chapter 3. Thankful that uh, Sam um, prayed for a fellow pastor and buddy of mine, Jeremy Rennie, who uh, is in the midst of um, some serious devastation. I'm sure that you've watched the news, maybe looked at some of the images on the internet. You've seen just a, a splattering of information that has come as a result of the devastation of Hurricane Ian. Uh, we were watching some YouTube clips last night and seeing how quickly it goes from beauty to disaster. And so we want to continue to pray for uh, our brother, Pastor Jeremy, and other churches and people who are in the Florida region. What got me thinking, especially as I've been studying Job, how things like these, the, um, the inevitability of hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, fires, even when we think back to the tragic event of 9-11, all that stuff causes us to ask a question. And that question is simply this, why? Why is this happening? Why has this happened? We begin to ask this why question, and that why question really drives at the heart of why is there suffering in the world? Is the suffering that comes upon human beings, is it just random chance? Or is there a purpose to our suffering? Is it senseless? Or can suffering actually be a good thing? And even as I say that, just asking the question, for some of us, I think when we put value on suffering, it, it almost seems unfathomable. How can suffering be any good? Well, listen to a few well-known Christians and what they've said about suffering. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and in it he writes this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. J.C. Ryle said, there is no commentary that opens up the Bible so much as sickness and sorrow. And then Charles Spurgeon, who struggled for many years with depression, he wrote, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. And John Piper, who's written many biographies and has spent quite a bit of time with saints of old, he writes this. He said, I've never heard anyone say that the really deep lessons of life have come in times of ease and comfort. But I've heard many saints say every significant advance I've ever made in grasping in the depths of God's love and growing deep with him have come through suffering. And even as you begin to think of the godly men and women that you have learned about, read about, or even met, can you really point to someone who you say is very godly and yet evaluating their life, they've just skipped, they've bypassed suffering altogether. You think about Job, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Ruth, David, Elijah, I mean, so many Old Testament saints, 
Then you get to the New Testament and read about John the Baptist and Jesus' disciples, Stephen, Paul, and many other New Testament saints. You read about the church fathers, Luther and the Reformers, William Tyndale and other Bible translators, David Brainerd, William Carey and countless other missionaries, C.S. Lewis and other creative Christian writers, Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, and the pantheon of all these pastors who have served throughout the years. And not to mention all the moms and dads, people that you've never heard of, people that don't have biographies and movies after them, but have suffered greatly. Listen, church, godliness is not a given. It comes at a cost. Many of you know uh, Tim Challies, brother pastor in Canada, and some of you heard that his eldest son, Nick, passed away suddenly, tragically, of a cardiac issue. He wrote this. He says, There is a necessary relationship between suffering and character. We can come to believe there can be no maturity without suffering, that suffering is the key to the heights of Christian spirituality. Suffering is often lauded as a key and perhaps the key to growth and maturity. And if all those things are true, if suffering is actually a prerequisite for godliness, then where does Job stand? I mean, he has more than enough credits for advanced degrees in suffering. He suffered, as we've learned the last couple of weeks, devastating loss. The disappearance of all his possessions, the destruction of all of his property, the dissipation of all of his finances, the diminishing of his reputation, the death of his loved ones, the deterioration of his health, the distancing of his spouse, the despairing of his very life. And on top of all that, there is the lingering disappointment that there is no end in sight. No one at least I think no one in the right mind would say, I want to sign up for that school. I, I want to go down that road of suffering. But listen, Christian, the Bible tells us very clearly in the words of Jesus himself, if you, if you desire to follow after me, persecution will come. Paul says all who desire to live godly lives will suffer persecution. We learn about this in 1 Peter that is actually the will of God for you to suffer. So you can't skip that class. If you're a Christian, you're automatically enrolled in the school of suffering, at least to some degree. And so the question now comes, well, what do we do, brothers and sisters, when suffering comes? Now, if the book of Job was only chapters 1 and 2, we might walk away extremely discouraged. Why? Because he is a blameless man, an upright man, a righteous man who turns away from evil and he has responded to suffering like no one we've ever heard of, at least no human. He set the bar so high that it seems not even visible, especially for us that when we stub our toll, we, we think it's like the end of the world. But here is Job in chapters 1 and 2. And we conclude, after reading chapter 1 and 2, well, no wonder he's the greatest man in the East. No wonder God gives his approval of this man. God himself saying there's no one like him on earth. It's because his response to suffering is amazing. It is otherworldly. 
It's how we all want to respond to suffering when it comes our way, but it's how we know that we don't respond. But listen, you have to read past Job 1 and 2. Because this blameless and upright man, he begins to, in chapter 3 and on, he begins to express doubt. We begin to see the chinks in his armor as he begins to give voice to his pain and his frustration and his confusion. This once pious and patient and praise-filled believer in God is still all those things, but you add to it now a protest. As he begins to, in a very raw and unfiltered way, lay out his lamentation, and he expresses deep despair. And the despair that we read about in chapter 3 is like no other despair that we read about in literature, both ancient and modern. So that's what we're turning to today. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his grace. Oh, Father, we need eyes to see and ears to hear. And Father, we need your spirit to direct our understanding as we read these very real, raw, difficult words from the mouth of Job. Father, may we feel in some degree his pain, sympathize, empathize, but be filled with wisdom to know, God, how we can overcome our own pains and hurts and help others do the same. Oh, Lord, we need your help. Be your help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our main idea if you're taking notes. Job 3 teaches that while suffering can be extremely sorrowful, it can still sanctify, which means we must take our suffering to the Lord and talk about it with one another. Let me say it again. Job 3 teaches that while suffering can be extremely sorrowful, it can still sanctify, which means we must take our suffering to the Lord and be willing to talk about it with one another. Well, if you've never read Job chapter 3, you're going to be shocked. The reason you're going to be shocked is because all of his friends were absolutely floored. They were shocked as well. And before we jump on the bandwagon and fall into the trap of being hypercritical and judgmental, we need to ask ourselves as we read chapter 3, we need to ask ourselves this is, have I felt this way before? Have I experienced this kind of pain and loss and loneliness and doubt? You see, all of us, every single one of us, we are capable of a variety of moods and responses, including the very dark and somber things that we read about here in this chapter. But before we jump into the exposition of the chapter, let me just provide you with a couple of, I think, helpful insights as we turn the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3. The first one is this, even as I've translated this this past week, the Hebrew gets a lot harder. Chapters 1 and 2 are just kind of straightforward, but once you get to chapter 3, the language becomes a lot more challenging and the concepts become a lot more challenging. And the second change explains why the Hebrew gets more challenging. It's more challenging because it goes from prose to poetry. Chapters 1 and 2, the prologue is all put in this narrative prologue. And then when you get all the way to the end of the book, you have the narrative epilogue. But everything in between, from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through 42, 6, it's all poetic. And even though 
the language and the metaphors and the imagery are challenging. Remember, this is the first book written. You don't have to be Shakespeare to understand what's going on here. This dispute between Job and his friends, it centers on two fundamental questions. And the questions are these. What sin did Job commit to bring this calamity upon him? And all throughout the poetry section, they're arguing back and forth about this very thing. And the second question is this. Is God right? Is he fair? Is he just to bring this upon Job without cause the way Job has described? There is no sin. You see, Job is confused. Job's friends are convinced that because God is fair and God is just, Job must have done something. He he must have sinned in some significant way. Whether it's a hidden sin, an unrepentant sin, he must have done something to bring about these consequences. But again, in Job's mind, as he's thinking back to his life and his own heart and his own integrity, in his mind, he's absolutely perplexed. How can this be? What did I do? He doesn't know what else to think about God because in his mind, he loves God. He's devoted to God. And yet, all this evil and wickedness has come upon him. And so now Job, expressing great despair, doesn't quite know what to think about his relationship with God. Maybe God isn't fair. Maybe God is not just. And these suspicions begin to arise in his heart as he thinks about the character of God and what he knows to be true and what he's experienced in his present state of affairs. And finally, another significant change as we come to chapter 3 is that Job begins to ask that all-important question, and it's why. Why? In the English text, it happens six times in five verses, and you can see it there in verse 11. Why did I not die from the womb? Verse 12, why did the knees receive me? Verse 16, why was I not like a miscarriage hidden away? Verse 20, why is light given to him who is troubled? Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? It is so important to note that Job is not questioning if God has brought this pain upon him. That has already been resolved. Job is already convinced that God is absolutely sovereign and what he's experiencing, God has brought his way. He said in Job 121, Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His theology has a firm grip on God's sovereignty. So the question is not a matter of, is God right in Job's mind? In Job's mind, it is, what is God's reason for doing this? What's his motive behind my suffering? Why is God doing what he is doing to me? And so how does Job respond to this gigantic why question? Some of you would say, well, not very well. Others would say, well, that's only natural. 
But regardless of where you fall there, one thing is clear is Job is dismayed. He is depressed. And the entire chapter expresses a desire for his non-existence. A desire for death over life because the pain is so great. So here's our outline, and we'll move through this fairly quickly and get to our application section. But we'll look at verses 1 through 10 where Job questions his conception. Then in verses 11 through 19, the middle of the chapter, Job questions his reception, his birth. And then Job at the end questions his oppression in verses 20 through 26. But as I mentioned, we'll focus on the application. We'll, we'll think about our own whys to consider. Why it might not be sin to desire death. Why it might be appropriate to give vent to our suffering. Why it is essential to know God and his word when we do suffer and when we counsel others who suffer. Why we should never give up hope. And lastly, why Jesus is the solution to all of our suffering. That's where we're going. So let's begin here in verse 1. Job questions his conception. Look there at verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Chapter 3 begins with afterward. Chapter 2 closed with the friend's arrival. They all come, and there's this dramatic display of mourning as they tear their robes, they throw up the dust, they lift their voices and weep. And when all that's finished, what do they do? They sit next to Job as he sits there in the ash heap for seven days and seven nights without saying a word. And it's after this. And remember, it's not just that Job has sat for a whole week straight. He's been sitting there for probably a month, if not more, in an ash heap all by himself. That's plenty of time to sit and ponder. What is God doing? He's been scraping away at his boils. He hasn't seen his kids' face faces. He hasn't heard their voices for some time now. And now this brother just has memories, and it's eating away at him. All that initial shock is gone, and he, he begins to think in ways that he's never thought before. Now, after the time stamp, after these things, the narrator tells us that he finally opened up his mouth. You say, well, what did he say? It says he cursed the day of his birth. Isn't it interesting? In chapters 1 and 2, Satan was desperately trying to get Job to curse God. And he threw everything imaginable at Job to get him to curse God. He took away his possessions, his property, his popularity, his posterity. We talked about that all in one day. His fortune, his fame, his family, they're all gone. But Job never curses God. Then when Satan took his health away, skin for skin, he said, Job still praises God, worships God. And even when Satan takes away his health, Satan hisses in Job's wife's ear, and she's the one that says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Chapters 1 and 2, it's an onslaught. Get him to curse God. Get him to curse God. Get him to curse God. He doesn't do it, and he doesn't do it through the rest of the book. But in chapter 3, what does he curse? It says here that he curses the day of his birth. Now, interestingly, I mentioned this the last couple of weeks, that that word for curse is actually the word bless in chapters 1 and 2. But in chapter 3, we have the real word for curse. And you say, well, why the change? Well, because the ironic use of blessing 
is no longer a question that's on the table. God has already demonstrated that Job loves him and serves him for him alone. And so we encounter this word, curse. Why does he want to curse his very conception? Well, he's wrestling with this question of why. Why is my good God not acting in the way that I've come to understand him to be good? You see, without the advantage point that we have, we've seen the heavenly courtroom. We've seen God say to Satan, this is my servant. He is blameless, a man of integrity, a man who is upright. We've seen that. Job has not. He doesn't have the revelation from God. And without that, he begins to question. And the question manifests itself in frustration He's experiencing what he's experiencing. Look at verse 2. He says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night which said a man is conceived. He launches into this expression of pain, and the poetic nature heightens his feeling. The, the beautiful thing about poetry, and I'm certainly not a poet, but the beautiful thing about poetry is it takes black and white words, and it gives it color, and it gives it sound and movement. And it even helps us to accurately express the kind of pain that we can't articulate quite well enough with words. But notice how Job's curse, it has cosmic implications. Look there what he says. Job is taking this all the way back to creation. His language harkens back to the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, we see this repetition. God created and it was what? God created and it was what? Good. Job wants to undo this. He wants to uncreate because he feels that his own existence is not good, it's bad. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 4 here in chapter 3. May the day be darkness. Let not God seek it from above, nor light shine on it. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 4, we read that on the first day, God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. You see, Job wishes to undo the separation of light and darkness. Why? Because he's not experiencing any light. He doesn't see any light. All he sees is darkness. In fact, when we look there at verse 5, we have this reoccurring thought. Look at verse 5. Let darkness and the shadow of death redeem it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Job feels like he is experiencing a darkness. A darkness like the darkness that was there before the worlds were created, where there's chaos and disorder. This is Job's feeling. But there's another allusion here to the creation narrative. God not only created the world and called it good, but he also created man and woman in his image. And there he says it is very good. And he gave man and woman the mandates to be fruitful and to multiply. But Job wishes that this too is reversed. He wants the night of his conception and the day of his birth to be completely erased. Now, just a side note here, when we think about my body, my choice, it's not. Job, the earliest book written, is affirming that at conception, this is life. 
a different, different, a different DNA, a different person, an image, in the image of God. Well, you say, hey, this is a little dramatic here. Job is waxing poetic here. Well, what, what is he doing? Well, he's expressing his pain. The kind of emotional pain and spiritual pain that is just overwhelming. You know, before I became a believer, my mom, when I was 19 years old, came down with breast cancer. Second time. 84 radiation, 1999, double mastectomy, chemotherapy, kicked her butt, all of her hair fell off, and she was on the verge of death. When I was 12 years old, my brother died in a motorcycle accident. At a very young age, I was pretty acquainted with pain, with death, with suffering. I felt lost. I felt alone. I was in a very dark place. I think back to those days, and the Lord used all of that darkness to grab my attention. In the darkness, he pointed me to the beauty and the hope of Christ and the gospel. It is true what so many have said, that the Lord melts before he molds. That's exactly what's happening here for Job. But he's still in this melting stage. He doesn't realize what we do from reading the whole book that, Job, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I want to jump into the pages of my Bible and shake him and tell him, God loves you. God knows what's best for you. God is doing this for your good and for generations to come. Thousands of years later, there's going to be people in Seaside thinking about this, and it's going to be an encouragement to them. Job, hold on. Trust your God. He's faithful. He always has been. He's never walked away from you. But right now, Job is what Psalm 23 says. He's in the shadow of death. He needs to be reminded, and all of us do this morning, that when you're in the dark valley, God hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't walked away from you. He is near in those moments, just as much in those moments of celebration and joy. It might not feel like it, but he sustains you, and that is his promise to you. But it's because Job is unaware of God's sustaining grace that he continues his lament. Look at verse 6. He says, As for that night, let thick darkness take it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it hope for light, but have none. And let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's body or hide trouble from my eyes. Listen, Job doesn't just wish that he had never been born. He says, in effect, I wish that there had never been any lights, no stars, no seasons, and I wish that Leviathan would be conjured up right now and he would just swallow everything up and return it back to chaos. A lot of people have debated this whole Leviathan, this creature that's described in Scripture. It's a very intriguing uh, figure. Some say it's a gigantic sea creature. 
But I want you to recognize that Leviathan also represents anti-creation. And this is what Job longs for, that creation itself be reversed. He fills himself formless and void. He fills the darkness has covered his heart. He wants to hit the rewind button and go all the way back to when before creation even happened. So he's not just cursing his conception, he's cursing the creation of his birthday and the creation as a whole. And he says, I want to invoke all of the stars and all those who conjure up Leviathan to come and remove everything. Now you say, well, why would he say something like this? And why would his friends be so alarmed? Well, I think it boils down to this. Because Job and his three friends believe in what's called the doctrine of retribution. Listen, do good and good will happen to you. Do evil and bad will happen to you. I guarantee you there are people in Florida that are thinking that right now. What did we do to what? Deserve this. Job knows he doesn't deserve this. So his theology is not working correctly. Something is wrong. His entire worldview has collapsed on him. Everything he's believed and built his life upon has been shattered by these events. How can the most righteous person who ever lived on the earth be suffering in this way? It seems just so unjust, so unlike God. And so with no answers yet, he truly believes that the best thing for the whole created order is to have never existed. Why should it, if his understanding and conception of God makes zero sense now? If this is the way God is going to act, if there's going to be no structure and logical framework and if there's going to be no truth but confusion and disorder, then what's the whole point? And you see how easy it is to slip into despair because if there really is no God, nothing makes sense. So his whole world has been turned upside down. Life itself makes no sense. And so he begins to question now his reception, his birth. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die from the womb, come forth from the womb, and breathe my last? I mean, he's wishing that he was a stillborn, miscarried, or he died immediately after death. And all the past joys of his life, they cannot compensate for his present misery so he says there in verse 12, why do the knees receive me? Why the breasts that I should suck? Why was dad waiting for me? Why did my mom welcome me? Why go through all the trouble of being born and being a baby if you grow up and experience this kind of pain? Now there are numerous terms here, just semantically, that clue us into the fact that Job really wants something but doesn't have it. What is it that he longs for? Look at verse 13. For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been, it would have been rest to me. Look at verse 17. There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary of strength are at rest. 
The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. You say, what is Job expressing? What he really wants is freedom. He wants rest. He wants deliverance. He wants peace. He wants calm. He wants tranquility. You take all of those beautiful words And what does he really want? He wants God. And because he doesn't have these things, he's not experiencing these things, he feels like he doesn't have God. And so he says in verse 16, Oh, why was I not like a miscarriage hidden away as infants that never saw light? He continues his laments. One thing is clear. He can't undo his conception. He can't erase the day of his birth. So now what? Well, verses 20 through 26. He says, well, death is better for those who are under heavy oppression. Job is alive, but his quality of life feels miserable. He's so despondent that death now appears to him to be the best option. So verse 20 begins with another why question. Why is light given to him who is in trouble? And life to the bitter of soul who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasure, who are glad with joy and rejoice when they find the grave. Job's question has now arrived at the presence. He knows he can't undo what happened before, but what about now? What about now? As pain continues to press upon him, notice here that this isn't just about him. He he is identifying a universal problem. He's expanding his question. It's a universal concern. Why does God grant life to anyone if those lives have to experience the kind of pain that he's feeling right now? He knows he's not the only one to suffer. Why does God allow people to live when it seems like it's so much better than just escaping. You see, Job is still convinced that it is better to avoid pain altogether. And he says that in verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? What we have here is beautiful wordplay. He doesn't even understand what took place before. Back in chapter 1, Satan said... The only reason that Job is worshiping you and praising you and committing to you is because you've put a hedge around him. God does that to protect us. God does that to secure us. But Job sees this hedge not as freedom, but oppression. Not as protection, but punishments. And so he says, my groaning, verse 24, it comes at the sight of my food and my roaring pours out like water. For the dread that I dread comes upon me, and what I'm afraid of befalls me. I am not complacent, nor am I quiet. Am I not at rest, and raging comes? And these last verses of the chapter are very difficult to translate. But when you look at your Bible, and you see the translation, I think there are a few translations that that miss the mark. The the NIV and the ESV, when you read verse 24, it says, my sighing comes instead of bread. And in verse 25, my groans pour out like water. 
But I just want to tell you that the concept of sighing, it's not strong enough. It is not nearly strong enough. Job isn't resigned. He's ruined. Unlike the LSB, I think it gets it right. They translate that first word groaning. These aren't soft groans like when your team loses a ball game. This is the kind of crying out when you learn that your team died in a car crash or a plane crash and all of them are dead. It is a weeping and wailing. The roaring here that's described as used a violent crashing of the ocean waves as we watched Hurricane Ian destroy cities. So listen, Job isn't whispering in his disappointment. He is absolutely wailing, probably at the top of his lungs in complete devastation. So much so is his pain that he says food is no longer even appealing to me. How can I even think about eating when this pain is poured out like an unending stream. That's Job chapter 3. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, you might be saying, well, put it down, or what a day to show up to this church. Or if you're a non-believer, you might be saying, well, what's up with you Christians? Why so dark and gloomy? But let me just say this, that pain and suffering are not unique to Christians. Pain and suffering are a human experience. Everyone suffers. Suffering does not discriminate. It touches every single one of us, every ethnicity, every age, every gender, every social class, every period of time on every place, on every continent. So the question is not, will you suffer? The question is, when you do suffer, where are you going to turn? When suffering comes your way and the pressures and the pains of life even blur out the memory of past pleasures, where are you going to turn? This is exactly why I'm so thankful for the Bible, for the Word of God. Because His Word teaches us what God is doing in suffering and who we can turn to with confidence and hope and joy in the midst of our suffering. The turmoil of life oftentimes creates a tunnel vision, and that tunnel vision gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And what we need is we need the Bible to increase our vision. And we need one another to help us to see the light and the hope which is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is just take some time to, to kind of tease out some of the implications here, some of the application from this text. And we'll start with this. Number one, why it might not be sin to desire death. Why it might not be sin to desire death. You say, Dom, that sounds a little strange. Well, listen, all Christians should desire death to some degree. You say, well, what do you mean? Are you Want us to be suicidal, sadistic? No, 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 not at all. The truth is that we all long, just like the Apostle Paul, to depart with and be with Christ. Why? Because that is far better. Why would we not want to be in a place where there is no more pain and suffering? Where there's no more sin and disappointment? No more fractured relationships? No more hurts? 
a place where there's no more tears and sorrow, a place where our bodies are restored and rejuvenated, a place where death is no more and the life of peace and prosperity and perfect communion with God and one another last for eternity. Why would we not want that? Of course we should long for death because death is our homecoming. We get to be with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus, our Savior. The reason why earth is so difficult is because we're homesick. We want to be at home with the Lord. That is a good thing. But listen, that good thing, listen clearly, that good thing becomes a bad thing when our longing for death ignores God's will for our life. It becomes sinful when we obsess in an unhealthy way, when all we want to do is just escape, when we want the easy way out. You see, there's an immense difference between the patient suffering that James talks about in light of the hope that is ours in Christ and the impatient suffering that wants to just cut it all short, there's a kind of coping with suffering that can actually draw you closer to the throne of grace, and there's a kind of coping with suffering that distances you further and further away from God. And Job, all of the book, is this tension where Job is holding on for dear life, and thoughts and temptations are coming his way, and he begins to think maybe irrational and illogical and unbiblical things about God and his character. But you see him holding on, trusting and hoping in his good God. All the while, his friends are giving him pathetic, worthless, godless advice. Listen, it is totally appropriate for you, Christian, to want deliverance from your suffering, but it is never, ever appropriate for you to curse God or to curse creation or to want to call it quits. Number two, why it might be appropriate to give vent to your suffering. I've read so many things about people frustrated with Job. Is this what a godly person does? Isn't he blameless? Why is he pouring all this out? There's your answer. This is what a godly person does. Listen, God knows how you feel. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to ignore it. You don't have to act like nothing's affecting you. The very best thing you can do in suffering is being honest with God. If anything, listen, your heavenly father wants you to come to him and express your pains and your hurts. Yes, there's a right way to go about it, but don't think for one second that you can't come to your father and that he doesn't want to hear what you're experiencing. He knows your hurts. He knows your pains. I think of Sister Johnny Erickson Tata, paraplegic since the age of 17. She said this. She said, make no mistake. Job's questions to God, they weren't of the polite Sunday school variety. They were pointed. They were sharp. And they seemed at times on the border of blasphemy. Tough, searching questions Job didn't toss softballs at his God. These queries were sharp and direct. Job's friends were horrified. 
scandalized, they half expected that lightning were to fall down and fry the suffering man on the spot. But then she says, but the lightning never came. And that to me is the comfort of the book of Job. What meant the most to me in my suffering was that God never condemns Job for his doubt and despair. God was even ready to take on the hard questions. Ah, but the answers... They weren't quite the ones Job was expecting. Job never gets all of the answers, but what Job does learn is he is God, and he is good, and that is good enough. Christian, you can cry out to God in your pain. You can lament. We've got so many psalms. There's 59 psalms of laments. Go home and read Psalm 88. Read Jeremiah the weeping prophets, read Lamentations. We see it over and over again that the godly don't just hide it, they express it to God. Number three, why is it essential to know God and his word when we suffer and we counsel others to suffer? Let me just say this, theology matters. Theology matters matters. If we don't know God and we don't know his word, we easily fall into several traps when we encounter suffering. We can easily make the mistake to think that Satan is on par with God. And there's this cosmic battle that's going on is one where who's going to win? I don't know. I love what Martin Luther says. He boldly acknowledged that even the devil is God's devil. Listen, Satan is summoned. Satan is submissive. He doesn't call the shots. He will never overpower God. He will never exercise authority over God, which means that when something comes your way, guess who does it? God does. But we can also make the mistake of thinking that God sends us good, but that's all he sends. We have to remember that some of Job's most powerful and truth-filled statements are after the devastating loss. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord, what? Has taken away. He said to his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? He recognizes that even calamity is from the hand of God. It wasn't Satan. It wasn't Job's sin. It's not an evil world. It is God. And even though Job struggled to understand why, he knew that his pain in part was from God. So correct theology matters, but listen, it also matters how it's applied. One time, someone lost their child, and they came to the master's seminary. There was a young seminarian there after school, and she began to cry out and express. And unfortunately, this guy said, well, Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and call the according to his purpose. Like, bro, you quoted the right verse. But how foolish, how stupid, how utterly insensitive of you to not just weep with that lady. Is that true? That God is sovereign over those things? Absolutely he is. But in that moment, he needed to apply different truth, comforting truth. Compassionate truth. All of Job's friends, they say lots of right things. Eliphaz is an historian. Bildad is a scientist. Zophar is a philosopher. 
All of these guys are exceptionally brilliant, but all of their brilliance is foolish counsel. All that knowledge, not rightly applied. And I think we read Job and what we walk away from them is don't be like these guys. Don't let your best counsel be during the week where it was absolutely silent. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how are you going to go about counseling your spouse, your husband, your wife, when they're going through serious bouts of depression? Parents, how are you going to counsel your kids when it seems like the world is crashing in on them? Kids, how are you going to counsel your parents when they are suffering and their body begins to deteriorate? What are you going to say? You know, as a leadership team, we've talked here about hopefully hiring another pastor that can get us on the pathway to biblical counseling. I want you to pray about that. But I also want you to understand something. We don't have to wait. All of us are biblical counselors. The question is, is how good of a biblical counselor are you? How biblical is your counseling and how compassionate is your counseling. So listen, it might not be sin to desire death. It might be appropriate to vent in your sufferings. It's essential to know God and his word when we suffer. Here's a fourth application. Why we shouldn't give up hope. And now let me have you turn to Romans chapter 8. Context, context, context. Don't just jump right to 828. Start with me at verse 18. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen, we live in a contaminated world, a world full of sin, but God's plan for us is that we would be liberated from the bondage of sin and death. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for the hope. Who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And in the same way, oh, dear Christian, how sweet is this? The Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not even know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with the groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What's the translation of all that? Look, when you are suffering, God draws near to you. He indwells you. He comforts you. And he provides you with a hope that you can't get from anywhere else in the world. It wasn't just sin for Job to desire death. It's appropriate for us to be honest with God in our suffering. We need to know the word. We need to know God when we counsel ourselves and others. We don't give up hope. But finally, here's one more why. Why? Jesus is the solution to our suffering. 
You see, even though Job didn't get the answers he wanted to in chapter 3, and even though God never revealed to him all that's taking place behind the scenes, Job now knows the truth. He spoke these words of hope in the height of his pain in Job 19. He said, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will rise up over the dust of this world, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. Listen, Christian, Job's Redeemer showed up 2,000 years ago. No one was more blameless and upright than Jesus Christ, and no one suffered more unjustly. And like Job, Jesus asked the same question, why? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father forsook the Son on the cross to fix and undo the problem of sin and suffering. He forsook his Son on the cross because our sin was placed on his shoulders. And out of love, he punished his very own Son, not only to atone for our sin, but that one day, all suffering would finally be removed. Do you see how Job is a preview of the one who came to cancel the curse? Do you realize that he himself suffered so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses when we suffer? Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to those who are tempted. You see, the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ fully resolves the problem of sin and suffering. He has defeated sin and Satan, and death, and just like he promised to one day come and crush the head of the serpent, he's also promised to come one day and wipe away every single tear from his beloved children. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person. I find it no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all of my heart, and to seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we are stunned Stunned at the reality that Job was not the most righteous and blameless person who ever suffered. It was actually you. And to consider, God, that you did that willingly. That you did that out of love for us. Lord, if we try to rewrite history, if we try to write a story equivalent to what we have in the Scripture, we would fall woefully short. God, this is just evidence. I think it's proof that the Word of God, 
that the Old and New Testament are supernatural, that this is from the mind of God, that the problem to sin and suffering, we don't chalk that up to random chance. We don't chalk that up to evolution. We don't chalk that up to things that just happen. No, God, you are sovereign, but you are also sufficient and sympathetic, and you, Lord, are our satisfying Savior. So thank you, God, for this book. Thank you for Job chapter 3. Thank you for the entire book of Job. Thank you for your sustaining grace in his life that he endured and you shaped him and molded him to look more like Jesus and to point us to Jesus. We love you, Lord. We need your help. We know suffering will come. Would you please tether us, moor us to the cross so that we, when we experience suffering, we would be mindful of our Savior who did not regard his own life but gave it up for us all. We pray this in his name. Amen.